Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 69. After Hours with Dr. Lewis Marcos. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. And we have a returning guest to the show, Dr. Lewis Marcos. Dr. Marcos is a professor in English at Houston Baptist University, where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. He first appeared on Pints with Jack back in Season 2, Episode 22, to talk about heaven and hell in Western literature. And you heard him a couple of months ago in Episode 61, talking about Owen Barfield and his book, Saving the Appearances. He is an authority on C.S. Lewis and has written a huge number of books on the Inklings and on ancient literature. And at the end of last year, he came out with a new book, which we're going to be talking about today, The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Dr. Marcos, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Great to be back on. Thank you. (laughs) What have you been up to since we spoke about heaven and hell back in season two? Oh, my. Well, I've been always doing Greco-Roman stuff, and particularly the last couple of years. Uh, We'll talk later, of course, about the new book, Myth Made Fact, but also in this summer, InterVarsity Press will come out with my new book called From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped Christian Faith. So that's the other side of Greek. And then over this last year, I publish a new book with a smaller press called Stone Tower Press called Ancient Voices, An Insider's Look at Classical Greece. And then I followed it up with Ancient Voices, An Insider's Look at Classical Rome. And sometime next year, I'm going to finish the trilogy with An Insider's Look at the Early Church. And in all of these, I I love dealing with primary texts. Let's actually hear the voice of these ancient Greeks and Romans. Let's hear what they thought about life rather than imposing our own thought upon them. Let them speak, and maybe we can learn and be shaped by them. And of course, while I'm doing all this, David, I'm always teaching the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and Dante's Inferno, and loving to get students into the great books and join the great conversation. And of course, I believe uh, that that great conversation has to bring together Athens, the Greco-Roman, and Jerusalem, the Judeo-Christian. I heard about the early church before I started reading them. And I've got to say, when I started reading them, it made all the difference in the world to encounter these people and hear their voices directly rather than filtered through what other people say about them. It's amazing. And I'll tell you, it's kind of funny, David. When I was going to college 35 years ago, a lot of the people like myself who were really you know, following Christ and loved the Bible and wanted to evangelize and all that, they were all leaving the Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican Church and becoming Baptists and Presbyterians and Calvinists and all that sort of stuff. And I, I grew up Greek Orthodox. But now a lot of my best students, the strongest Christians, are going the other way. They're crossing you know, the Tiber to Rome or crossing the Bosporus to the Orthodox Church or becoming sort of high Anglican, Anglo-Catholic. And part of it is not only a desire for the sacred, but an engagement with these early church fathers that is filling people up with a sort of excitement and a joy for the tradition and the past. And I think this is a good thing and a very needed thing 
in our age that's so fragmented, fragmented and disassociated and cut off from everything. So it still takes me by surprise, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's because I'm now running a C.S. Lewis podcast, but I know way more high church Anglicans than I ever knew when I was in England and yeah. when I actually went to an Anglican church myself. Oh, really? See, that's interesting. Yeah, there's just a, a new joy and, and excitement about, you know, connecting again with the tradition. And, I, you know, it's one of the reasons I keep writing these books, because I'm connecting with this tradition as well more and more. What can we learn from it? How can it shape us? How can it humble us? How can it challenge us? Because I tell you, David, for too long, the last hundred years, everything has been about us moderns looking down on early literature and feeling somehow morally superior to it. And I think we are, not all of us, but I think a lot of the people you're talking to were learning a new kind of humility. And guess what? We can not only learn from the early Christians, we can actually learn from the pre-Christian pagans, which is kind of a wild concept, and maybe we'll talk about it more later. Uh, but there's a new kind of humility and willingness and openness to be inspired and challenged by the past. Yes, when I grew up, chronological snobbery was definitely alive and well, but <laughs> yes. it does seem to have a little bit of a hiatus at the moment. And I think you're right. I think it's because everybody's feeling so rootless mm -hmm. that, that, that they need to connect to something bigger and deeper than themselves. And we're actually having Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio on the show in a few months to talk about his book, When the Church Was Young. Oh, good. I, I keep recommending that book. It's easily one of my favorites. I first encountered him years ago. I was in my early 20s at that point, and he was the first person that introduced me to the fathers. And I will never forget how he began his talk. He said, some people think history is boring, but it shouldn't be boring if it's told well. And it definitely shouldn't be boring if it's about our family. It's true. And, you know, obviously I was, you know, an English major, a literature major, and probably the number one, if you ask people, why did you become an English major, including myself? The number one answer is because I had a real good English teacher in high school. Because there's something about literature and history and philosophy that sort of rises or falls on the professor. And if the professor is a good storyteller and is excited and wants to bring you in to the myths, into the stories, into the epics, the tragedies, the history, and you know, who can be passionate about that? But when you have a teacher, all the way back to Socrates, who is passionate about asking the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? How do I know the value? When you've got that, it brings it alive, and that's when you get people interested again in the classics. There's a document in the Catholic Church called Evangelii Nuntiandi, uh -huh. and there's a wonderful line. It says, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than teachers. Ooh. And if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. It was by Pope Paul VI. That is true. Gorgeous. <laughs> it, it really is. So what is the exact Latin translation of that? It's just basically sharing the good news. Uh, evangelization in the modern world, I want to say. I guess okay, in the modern world, yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, there was a time a couple hundred years ago when, when you took a class at Oxford, they were lecturing in Latin, even if it wasn't a Latin class. Mm -hmm. I mean, so things have, things have really changed amazingly. <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord for that one. <laughs> I suffered through Latin for years. My son actually teaches Latin at a classical Christian school, so we got some Latin going on in the family. <laughs> well, we'll be talking about your book shortly, The Myth Made Fact, but before that, we have to move through our standard episode segments. The quote of the week comes from the section in Mere Christianity where Lewis talks about his own view of the pagan myths. 
God sent the human race what I call good dreams. I mean, those queer stories scattered all through the heathen religions about a God who dies and comes back to life again, and, by his death, has somehow given new life to men. And our drink of the week, well, for me, it's a latte. It's a coffee, because we're recording on a lazy Saturday morning. Uh, Dr. Marcus, are you drinking anything? Right, I'm just drinking water. I'm just trying to keep myself hydrated here so we can talk. (laughs) I'm kind of boring today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, take a good swig. And for the people who have only recently started listening to our podcast and haven't heard the episode from season two, would you mind giving them a quick recap of your literary life? Wow, okay. Well, um, even though I live down in Texas, I'm actually a Yankee. Grew up in New Jersey and went to Colgate University, where I majored in English and history both. Then I went to the University of Michigan, up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and got my master's and PhD in English literature. My dissertation was on Wordsworth, and I specialized in the British Romantic and Victorian poets. But my other areas of specialty are anything to do with C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, apologetics, all of that, and anything to do with ancient Greece or Rome. And I kind of move in those different waters. And I'm a, a professor of English and scholar in residence. And believe it or not, David, I am finishing my 30th year now wow. teaching at Houston Baptist University. It's obvious that I began teaching when I was 15 there, right? And uh, <laughs> the time has gone by fast, but I still love to do that and get in. And, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast would consider C.S. Lewis to be their role model. But I'm lucky, David, because he's a double role model for me, right? He's not only, you know, the Christian apologist. He was an English professor like I am. And I'll tell you, one of the things that Lewis taught me, aside from all the Christian stuff, is taught me to be brave enough to be a generalist. Because we live in an overly specialized age. It's ridiculous. I mean, okay, if there's something wrong with my eye, I want to go to an eye specialist. But there's no reason for this ridiculous specialization in the humanities. And so Lewis, he had a specialty, (laughs) medieval and Renaissance literature, that's for a specialty, right? But he read everything, and he wrote about everything. And, you know, they never gave him a professorship at Oxford, and it wasn't just because Lewis was open about his faith. I think that they discriminated against him because he dared to be a generalist and give popular talks about things outside his area of specialization. Even Tolkien gave him a hard time sometimes. Come on, Jack, leave that to the, to the <laughs> theologian. Stop writing all that apologetics. Right? So even Tolkien had a little bit of that prejudice. And Lewis, really, me and other people, gave us the courage to say, hey, you've got to go out there and read it all, and not just all the literature, but the philosophy and the history, and learn about the music and the art so you can make connections, you can synthesize, you can understand the wholeness of what it means to be human. So, you know, that's, those are some of the things that sort of energize me uh, as a professor. And you've written a new book about the pagan myths, and you've written about pagan myths before. I'm thinking of your book, From Achilles to Christ, where you explain why Christians should read the pagan classics. What was it that made you want to write another book about pagan literature, and how is this one different? Well, I'll tell you, David, I mean, in that book, I talked about the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. And I love all of those things. But in the years since, it's been about 10 years since I published that, I thought, you know, I want to go even deeper. Now, how do you go deeper than Homer and Virgil and Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides? Well, you go to the myths, the original raw material that not only inspired them, but inspired most of the great 
uh, writers and composers and, and, and you know, painters and sculptors for the last several thousand years. So it's like, let's really, resource month, let's really go ad fontes, as they say. Let's really go back to the sources and get to the raw material that's the basis of most of our great arts. And so I thought, let's go back and look at the myths themselves. And what I want you to do this time is, you know, also bring in an element of storytelling. I mean, you know, when I wrote Achilles to Christ, I, you know, I kind of quickly go over the plot, but I can't, you know, spend pages and pages retelling the Iliad. It's too long. But I thought, let's grab a hold of 50 myths. And myths are shorter, right? And I can start my analysis of them by retelling the myth as if I were an ancient storyteller. So it allows me to, to give a kind of drama. Because too often, David, when people want to know about a myth, they go on Wikipedia and read a little you know, synopsis. No, no, no. These are myths. They need to be heard as a story. And I have exciting news for you. Right now, I am working on the audiobook of my book. Wonderful. No one's ever asked me to do an audiobook of my book. Uh, so <laughs> I might that would probably be several months before it's available. But, but it's great because it's allowing me to really retell these stories before I go on to analyze them and go deeper and show the, the Christian dimension and, 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 and show people that it sounds crazy, but a Christian can read pagan mythology devotionally, read a story and dig into it and look for layers of meaning. And I do believe our faith can actually be strengthened by a real dialogue with and a wrestling with these great myths. I love that idea of reading texts other than the Bible devotionally. I, I'm not a huge poetry guy, but of the poetry that I do like, I, I like reading it in that similar kind of fashion. It, it, we would call it like Lexio Divina. So you read it and then you think and you ponder and then you reread it again. You yeah. think and ponder and you think about what, what jumped out of you, what word, what phrase, and then spend a little bit of time meditating upon that. This is, I mean, people have, you know, people have done this throughout the Middle Ages. They would read allegorically. Now, interestingly, David, it wasn't just the early Christians that read allegorically. Some of the Jews did, like a famous writer called Philo, and also some of the Neoplatonists. They were pagans, but they really did not believe literally in the myths anymore. And they also found them you know, very, very disturbing with sex and violence and stuff, but they felt they were important. So what they would do is they would read them and look for a deeper level of meaning. And the early Christians did this as well. Now, we do need to be careful, because unfortunately, what somebody like Rudolf Bultmann does is he takes the Bible and treats it as if it were only Greek mythology. Mm. In other words, he, he calls it looking for the kernel of meaning, okay? When we're dealing with the Bible, we have historical, literal level, but we also have a mythological or allegorical level. There's several levels going on at the same time. With the mythology... There's not usually a historical level. Although there, you know, there might have been an actual person named Achilles or Hercules, but still, we're, we're dealing in the world of legend and myth. But what we're getting from it are deeper allegorical level, levels of meaning, spiritual, moral meanings that challenge us in the way we live our lives and whatnot. So now here's, the, here's the important thing. Okay, even though the Bible does have a historical level, it actually happened, right? Under Pontius Pilate, as Lewis reminds, it really happened. Still... There is a deeper spiritual level to Scripture that will open it up and strengthen us. But, David, how do we learn how to do that? 
Too often when we go to Sunday school or Bible study, we may learn how to open it up theologically and historically, but who's there to teach us how to find deeper spiritual and allegorical and mythical levels? Well, if you have cut your eye teeth learning to do that with mythology, you can bring that level of meaning with you back into Scripture, and now you can appreciate and be challenged by all the many layers that are there. Mm. Let me just step back. This may not sound relevant, but I think it really is. Lewis wrote a book called Miracles, right, where he defends miracles in the modern age. And when he defends the miraculous, he has to defend it against two totally different groups. First, he has to convince the secular humanist that miracles are possible, right? Because a, a secular humanist says, you cannot break the laws of nature. Lewis says miracles don't break the laws of nature. They suspend the laws of nature. All right, I'm not going to get into that, but in miracles, he makes an argument about miracles that are consistent with the natural world. But guess what, David? There are another group of people, many of them Christians or at least theists, who, while they accept the possibility of miracles, believe that miracles are beneath the dignity of God. Right? In other words, my God doesn't do parlor tricks. God wouldn't invade. You know, this is that kind of deism where God you know, sets the watch going and lets it go on. So what Lewis does in miracles is he tries to show, no, 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 you're not understanding this, okay? The miracle is consistent with God, but you have to look more deeply. The whole idea of death and resurrection is written all the way throughout nature. God wrote it into nature. The seed that dies and is buried and then bears much fruit. The incarnation is written everywhere. The two into one is the nature of marriage. It's the nature of sexuality. It's the nature of childbirth. For Christianity, it's the nature of heaven, because we will be one with God, but we'll still be ourselves. Christianity knows nothing of this amorphous one soul that you get in the East. We're still ourselves, and yet we're one with God. So what Lewis is saying is you need to look deeper, and when you look deeper, you will see that those miracles are written completely throughout nature, but we've lost the eyes to see them. Look, the first miracle at Cana of Galilee, Jesus turns water into wine. As Lewis reminds us, Every day, water turns into wine. It just takes a long, long time, right? The water has to go up into the root, and it, it swells, and the grape is made, and then the grape is crushed, and it's fermented. But all, all drinks are finally some kind of filtered water, Lewis says. Right, so that miracle is happening all the time, but we don't notice it. And then, in a snap, when Jesus does it, in one second, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, the veil is removed, and we see the real miracle that was there all along. Okay, that's a long little excursive there, but it comes back to all myths ultimately are underwritten or undergirded by the great myth. It's, today it's often called the meta-narrative, the great story of creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, and glorification. In the miraculous birth and death and resurrection of Christ and ascension into heaven, this is the great story, the, the grand story, the meta-narrative that informs all other stories. So all other stories are ultimately pointing to that great story that's written so deeply into our world, into our cosmos, that we no longer notice it. And we need to be woken up to it by a miracle or maybe by a myth. 
Well, before we get too far, we should probably then define our terms. What actually is a myth? Ah, there we go. Pre-conversion Lewis said it's lies breathed through silver. Ah. And we're pretty sure he changed his mind on that. But how would, how would you define a myth? The way I like to define a myth, and I'm not sure who the first person was to say this, right? But, okay, when you or, you or I, we go to sleep and we have a dream. And maybe we write down our dream and try to analyze it. But when a whole culture or nation or tribe dreams together, you have a myth. Isn't that a wonderful way of thinking of a myth? Okay, a myth is a story that explains things. And usually those myths are explaining something to do with origins or endings, the, the arche or the telos, the alpha or the omega. The myth is getting at the very essence of what it means to be human. A lot of myths are, here's a fancy word, etiological. Etiology means the study of origins, of why things are the way that they are. And so a myth is a way of dealing with that, of, of wrestling with the issues and answering the big questions. And mythology used to do that. Okay, now religion used to do that, but a lot of people today think only science can answer all the big questions. And we have sort of mythologized our science, I really think, in many ways, uh, to the point that it gets kind of ridiculous, where we think science can explain everything. Um, but so, so Lewis and Tolkien and others often refer to Christianity as a true myth. And what they meant by that is it's true because it actually happened in real space and time. God invaded the world. All of this happened. But it's also a myth because it's also a story that explains why things are the way they are. Now, here's the cool part. In as much as it's truth, it appeals to our logic and our reason. But in as much as it is myth, it also appeals to our emotion, to our deeper spirituality, to our intuition. So if we want the story of Christ to speak to the whole person, then we need to be able to reach out and grasp its intellectual, historical, geographical side. But we also need to allow in the spiritual, mythic, allegorical side. Otherwise, we're not going to be fed by the fullness of the divine story. Because we're just coming off of Barfield Month, my mind is ringing with Barfieldian ideas, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah. Uh, I think probably a good place to go to next would be, can you just give us an example myth or two from your book and explain your approach just uh, to incarnate these ideas a little bit, to, to put some flesh on those bones? Well, two, two of the most famous uh, stories that are clearly, again, etiological, that's E-T-I, etiological, are the story of Prometheus and Pandora. And many people know the story of Prometheus, right, that he was one of the titans, right, and the gods were sort of jealous of us, and Zeus would not give man fire, and we were left defenseless against it until Prometheus, out of pity for man, stole the fire from the gods and gave it to us. And we need to understand that in the myth, fire is not only that which allows us to cook our food keep ourselves warm, keep away wild animals. Fire is also the crucible of all creativity. Out of it comes things like woodworking and glass blowing and pottery and whatnot. So what, 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 what Prometheus is stealing for us is the very essence of creativity, right? But then he is punished for it. 
right? The famous punishment where he's stripped naked and he's chained, crucified in a way, to a giant uh, mountain in the Caucasus between Europe and Asia. And there, every day, uh, a giant eagle, or sometimes it's a vulture, attacks him and bites him and devours his liver. But every night, the liver regenerates so it can be devoured again. Now, a lot of people think that eagle is a myth, but in America, we, call, we, we, we understand that that eagle is called the Internal Revenue Service, okay? Comes and <laughs> devours things once a year until they grow back, right? So, okay, so what, what have we got here? This is a really crazily complex myth. And the reason why I say that is Prometheus is at once a Christ figure who suffers on behalf of man, but he also, in a weird way, is a Satan figure who rebelled against God and who, just like the, 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 the serpent tempted Eve to eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and of evil, he gives us the, the fire, which is also the fire of knowledge. So in the story of Prometheus, we are, we are wrestling with what it means to be human, right, with, with both the, the, the danger and, and, and the creativity, and we're wrestling with all of these things, right? Now, it's interesting that the Greeks link these stories together, and although my 50 stories are separate, I, whenever there's an ability to link them together, I will. I, like, group them together so they sort of make sense. And uh, because Prometheus stole the fire, Zeus wanted to uh, punish man, and so he created the first woman. And her name was Pandora, which means all the gifts, because all the different gods and goddesses gave Pandora a gift. Then they married Pandora to Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus. Prometheus, by the way, means forethought, and Epimetheus means afterthought. He wasn't thinking very well. Okay, he <laughs> marries Pandora, and the gods give Pandora a beautiful little box, and they tell her that she must not ever, ever open up the box, right? Well, after a year of marriage, curiosity grabs a hold of her. She says, oh, let me just peek. Maybe there's jewelry in there. And she opens it just a crack, and immediately the lid flies open, and out come all the evils of the world, sin and disease and famine and war, plague. All of it comes out. And she slams shut, but it's too late. Everything's escaped. But then at the bottom of the box, she hears a little voice, Pandora, let me out. Who are you? I am hope. And she opens up the box, and out of the box comes hope. So, again, the story of Pandora is almost exactly like the story of Eve. It's, it's what we would call the fatal curiosity. Uh, and when Eve saw that the, 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 what the, the apple was good to look at and good for the tasting and good to make one wise, she ate of it and gave also to her husband, and he ate. So we've got a sense of that. But even as the Greek myth allows us to see this sort of pagan understanding of fatal curiosity and how we ushered in a sort of knowledge that brought despair with it, right? There's still a little sense of hope at the bottom of the box. And guess what? Most people know this. In Genesis 3, right after we fall, we've just completely screwed everything up. We're in big trouble. Death is ushered into the world. And yet at the very moment, that God is cursing us, right? He curses, you know, man, you will work by the sweat of your brow. And what does he say to the woman? You will, I will increase your, your pains in childbirth. But even as he's cursing the woman and the serpent, he says, 
I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent will bruise your heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. And we call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news, because the seed of the serpent, which is ultimately Satan, he attacked the seed of the woman, Christ, when he got us to crucify him. He literally bit his heel. But out of the crucifixion, Christ was able to crush his head in the resurrection. But how wonderful this is. The hope at the bottom of Pandora's box is sort of a free-floating hope. It doesn't really quite adhere to anything. But the hope expressed in that Proto-Evangelium would come true thousands and thousands of years later when Christ, the ultimate you know, son of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the power of Satan's sin and death. So you see, you see how meditating on these stories actually helps us understand the true myth from the Bible better and therefore under ourselves, understand ourselves better and our interaction with God, with the divine, right? And that's just a couple of examples, but there's so many layers of meaning that we can unpack, and as we unpack them, we're actually understanding the Bible on more levels. Now, I'm sold on this, but not everybody is. Some people just don't see the value in myth and pagan literature, and, and they would ask, can we really do this? Can we really say that Christ is not only the new Joshua and the new Moses, but also the new Achilles and the new Odysseus? Can we really say that Jesus not only fulfilled the Hebrew prophecies, but also the pagan myths? And you even tell the story of an evangelist who didn't read any fiction following his conversion. Uh, and even such an attitude, it's not entirely absent from history either. The great church father and biblical translator, St. Jerome, he famously renounced pagan literature, although we all knew that he really loved it. Uh, he did really love it. <laughs> so what I want to know is, how do you respond to these objections? And what would you do if you, say, had the opportunity to sit down and have a coffee with St. Jerome? Okay. Let's start with that wonderful passage you quoted from C.S. Lewis at the beginning of the podcast here, uh, and set it in, in the full context of what Lewis is doing. Okay, I don't know about you, David, but it's always bothered me. Are you saying that before the coming of Christ, God ignored 99% of humanity and only talked to the Jews? Well, yes and no. Only to the Jews did God give special direct revelation, speaking through the prophet, through Moses, through the word of God, at that point, the Old Testament, right? But he didn't ignore the rest of humanity. And as Lewis says in the, in the fuller passage, before the coming of Christ, God spoke, right, through our conscience, right? He spoke through that specific people, the Jews, but he also spoke through the good dreams of the pagans, God did not leave himself without a witness. He still provided what theologians call general revelation through nature, through creation, through our conscience, through our reason, through our imagination. And one of the ways God spoke was through pagan literature, the good dreams, the good myths, the good poetry. That was the way he was preparing their heart for the coming of the uh, preparatio evangelium in Latin, that's the phrase. Um, Eusebius wrote a book about that, the, the famous church historian, 4th century uh, AD, he wrote about that. So this is God's way of preparing the pagan people, so that when Paul gives his famous sermon at, uh, in Athens at the Areopagus, he can actually quote two lines of pagan poetry. One was by 
a man named Epimenides, and he said, in him we live and move and have our being. And another one was by Aratus, and it was, we are his offspring. This is Acts chapter 17. Now, in both of those original Greek poems, the he is a reference to Zeus. But what Paul is saying, now therefore what you have worshipped in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. These poets didn't know it. They thought they were speaking of Zeus, but they were pointing to a higher truth that they could not possibly understand, but which God gave them an intimation of. Right? So God is, okay, you kind of said it. All Christians believe that, that, the, the, that the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. But I would suggest, and a lot of the church fathers would understand this as well, from Justin to Augustine all the way on up, all the way on up to you know our inklings and stuff like that, that Christ also fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagan people. We catch glimpses of Christ in the various figures in Greek mythology. So again, Prometheus is a Christ figure crucified on the rock, but He's not perfect, right? He's still a fallen, he's a glimpse. Uh, we see now dimly in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I like to say that the pagans saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but they saw something. They caught an understanding of the need for some kind of redemptive suffering. You know, if, if you want to go crazy, just, just look at the story of Hercules and put him alongside Samson. It's unbelievable how similar they are given such strength by the gods, and yet turned aside again and again by their lust and their impulsiveness. And if you go back and look at medieval and, and even more Renaissance art, they will often have a painting or an etching of Samson, but he's depicted as if he were Hercules. Okay, So so many of these savior figures, these messianic figures, not all of them, but some of them are semi-divine. Achilles is, uh, is, is the son of Thetis, uh, a goddess. Uh, Aeneas is the son of Venus or Aphrodite. Uh, Perseus, the one who kills uh, Medusa and cuts off her head, he's the son of Zeus. Uh, not all of them. Theseus is the son of a king. He's not divine, but he is the son of a king who has to enter into his uh, inheritance at some point. So these stories do speak to us. I think they, they prepare the heart and they also make concrete our innate desire for God. God has written eternity in the hearts of men. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, says Augustine, right? The first one is from Ecclesiastes, of course. All right. Now, you mentioned a story. Let me tell a story. About 10 years ago, uh, my parents live in Florida and I was visiting them and there was a radio evangelist, he's since deceased, a radio evangelist who was telling people, don't read C.S. Lewis, because he's bad. And a friend of mine knew I was there, so he said, can you sit down and talk to this man, who was a very strong believer and a very good evangelist. So nothing bad to say, but he was saying this. Now, I quickly discovered what I had guessed. He had never actually read anything by C.S. Lewis. He'd read something on, online and just put it at face value. Okay, that didn't surprise me. What surprised me was this. When I asked him, sir... Have you read anything by C.S. Lewis? Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? His answer was, a very serious answer, ever since I became a Christian 40 years ago, I've not read a single work of fiction. Now, he didn't read anything. He didn't even read the Left Behind series, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, I was going to say. That was, that was a close save. <laughs> but anyway, he read no fiction of all, right? Now, what's going on? Now, 
if I wanted to be a wise guy, I would have said, well, you know, the parables of Jesus are fiction, right? They're short stories. He's making them up. But I didn't. He was a lot older than me, and I wasn't going to be a, a hip squeak, right? But when I went away and really thought and prayed about it, there was a moment of enlightenment, the aha moment. And here was my aha moment. If you were to ask that man, why don't you read fiction? He would respond, because I'm a Christian. But I want to argue that the real reason he doesn't read fiction, the reason he doesn't know himself, is that he's a modernist and doesn't know it. As Christians, most of us have bought into something that is often called the Enlightenment split. This idea that there is reason or emotion, logic or intuition, history or myth, science or religion, facts or values, and there's nothing in between. It's one side or the other, and we're unable to think. And what happens is that we start treating the Bible as if it were a modern book following the, you know, the strictures of logical positivism, where there can't be any contradictions in a mathematical, logical sort of way. We've forgotten, we've forgotten that the Bible is an old book. It was written long before anybody came up with this finally false notion that there's one or the other. They, they often call that a binary or a dichotomy, a split between the two. And that's not the kind of book the Bible is. Look, if God wanted to give us that kind of a factual scientific textbook, there would only be one gospel. There wouldn't be four. Why would you give us four gospels to confuse us, right? We certainly wouldn't have any need for first and second chronicles when we already have first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. Come on, what's what's going on there? Let's be a little more systematic. Well, that systematic way of looking at things is our modernist hang-up, and it didn't exist before the Enlightenment gave us that new view of knowledge. So the Bible is not a scientific textbook. The mistake that the fundamentalists made is they thought, okay, the Bible can't be a true book unless it holds up to modern scientific logical analysis. And they went farther than that. They decided the only kind of truth is scientific, logical, factual truth. And that's not the kind of book the Bible is. It's never intended to be that. And so what they did is they accepted a modern criteria for truth that is wholly artificial, and I would argue not true at all, and certainly not true to the world that created the Bible, or actually the world before, about 300 years ago. The trouble is, once you decide that I'm going to judge the Bible along a modern scientific criteria, guess what? We are going to lose, okay? I'm sorry, a couple of the Gospels say that both of the uh, thieves, both of the two guys on the cross were attacking Jesus. Only Luke tells us that one said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Now, I have no problem with that, because the Gospels are what they claim to be, separate eyewitness accounts. And so different eyewitnesses are giving us a different perspective. There's no problem. A, a logical judge wouldn't have problems with that. But if we insist on looking at the Bible as if it were a modern scientific textbook, that is going to appear to be a contradiction, and then people are just going to stop accepting the authority of Scripture. So we need to read the Bible for the kind of book it is, and we simply cannot understand the fullness of Scripture if we don't understand literature, because well over half of the Bible is poetry, right? It's got prophecy, it's got short stories, it's got novellas, it's got all sorts of things in there, allegories, all different things, many of which are not literal in the way we like to think of literalness. And so 
we have to shake this off. We have to stop being modernists without realizing it. Wow, that's a long answer for you, David. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really great. In your book, you focus on Greek and Roman myths. And I'll just point out to listeners, if you want a, a gentle way of starting to dip your toe into these mythological systems, get Dr. Marcus's book and also listen to the Mythology podcast. They do dramatic retellings of the great mythological stories from across the globe. But that's actually what I wanted to ask about. Do you think the principles that you use in this book could be used on other mythological systems? Uh, a little while ago, I read Neil Gaiman's book on the Norse myths, simply because I knew Lewis loved them. And I was regularly put in mind of the good news as I was hearing these stories. Although I will say I found it generally harder than in the Greek and Roman systems. It is harder. Now, I should say, one of the unique things about Norse and Scandinavian, all, all those myths up there, is that we don't have any of the actual original myths written by actual real Scandinavian pagans. So we don't have an Iliad or Odyssey or Greek tragedy or Aeneid or Ovid's Metamorphosis or Hesiod. Every single book we have of Norse mythology was actually written by later Christian writers, many of the monks, like the guy who wrote Beowulf was clearly a Christian monk. So they're already, we, we, we know, it would be so wonderful if we could you know, compare and contrast. I, I feel fairly confident that they did a good job and a faithful job, right? But in a way, when we read you know, one of the Eddas or something like that, or the Volsung Saga, or, or you know, Nibelungenlied or whatever, we're actually reading a pagan mythology that's already been filtered through a Christian consciousness. And that ultimately is what Tolkien was doing when he wrote Lord of the Rings. He's writing a new Beowulf or a new Boethius. He is a Christian Catholic writer, but he's trying to be faithful as much as he can to the pre-Christian and even pre-Jewish world that he's presenting in Middle Earth. Uh, so it's a little bit different. But yes, I, I am hoping that People that read my book and like it will be inspired to write something that focuses on North mythology or Egyptian mythology or someone that focuses on mythology from China or India or Japan. And, and, and I do. I believe that if you really study all of these ancient systems, that you are going to find those links. You're going to find what uh, uh, Don Richardson, he wrote The Peace Child and Eternity in Their Hearts. Don Richardson calls them redemptive analogies. If you look long enough and hard enough, you will probably find some redemptive analogies in every ancient culture, some way that God was preparing their... I mean, it, it should be there. If it's not there, it would be a stumbling block, right? I mean, Lewis, I'm kind of paraphrasing Lewis, right? If Jesus you know, comes into the world, the incarnation, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and all of that cycle, if that says nothing to the pagan audience, if it is completely foreign, then it would be like a foreign god invaded the world. Because remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the savior of the world. And so it would actually be a stumbling block if there weren't all of these so-called corn gods, Osiris and Isis and you know, Adonis and Tammuz and Mithras and Baldur and all these people. If, if Jesus didn't sound like any of them, that would be the stumbling block. It would seem like this is a foreign invader. But no, what we see is that Jesus fulfills all the highest and deepest yearnings of the pagan people. So I want people to do that. And you know what? In, in I think it's July now, my book, Plato to Christ, is coming out. I hope 
that people will read that, and I hope a Chinese Christian will write a book called From Confucius to Christ and see if he can find... Now, remember, this doesn't really work. I may get myself in trouble here, but this doesn't really work if you write something called From Muhammad to Christ, okay? Because the Quran is already taking Christianity and making something that's heretical, okay? You, you also can't have from Joseph Smith to the Bible, because okay? you've got somebody that's taking the Bible and going off in a different direction, basically a cult that became a religion, okay? These, these are for things that are pre-Christian. Although some of the young people that have given up on the church and turned over to a kind of neo-paganism, we might find something there, okay? But mostly they're looking for old stories that they want to revive them. So, yes, I am really hoping other people will look for these same intimations of truth in other ancient cultures. I mean, I just you know, kind of kept myself focused on that. That's what I know best and what I love best. And again, because we have so much of the original stories that we don't often have for other places. I mean, the, the best example, uh, I didn't do it in my book because I'm focusing Greece and Rome, but a lot of people know that there was an uh, Egyptian pharaoh named Akhenaten who wrote a famous hymn to the sun. And he seems almost like he's moving towards a kind of monotheism. And of course, he was destroyed and overturned by all of the uh, you know, other priests and whatnot that were terrified he was going to you know, upset the apple cart and destroy everything. So he was basically killed, right? Uh, Socrates himself, when you read the, the Apology, he's clearly moving towards a kind of monotheism that's moving beyond all these rival gods of Homer. And remember, they accused him of basically, well, they accused him both of atheism and of also teaching foreign gods. It's kind of an odd mixture. But, and, and he was put to death. So there are early people. There was also a, a king, I think it was amongst the Incas, named Cusco, who also was moving towards a kind of monotheism. It's in that book, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Uh, so, yes, I, I really do hope that, you know, the, whatever the project I'm trying to do in this book will be expanded to other cultures and to other mythologies, because I believe it's there if we only have eyes to see. When I was a kid, we had, I think it was an encyclopedia at our house, and there was one image, it had these beautiful drawings in it, and there was one that was deeply burned into my brain, and it was of the afterlife in Egyptian mythology. And I remember it being a picture of the man's heart being weighed against a feather. And even back then, all I could think of, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have expressed it in these terms, but he doesn't stand a chance. He's going to need some help from the gods if that is ever to balance. Oh, good. You know, it's amazing. I mean, like a lot of people, I was never quite as much uh, attracted to Egyptian mythology just because it seems so bestial, right? I mean, the Greek gods are, you know, making their gods in, in the form of basically Olympic athletes. And then I go to Egypt, and you get these jackal heads and eagle heads. I mean, it just seems terrifying and seems so anti-humanistic. And yet, there you have it. Right at the core, the Book of the Dead, weighing the soul against a feather, understanding that sin is a kind of heaviness that weighs us down. There's this deep understanding. And, of course, in the story of, 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 of Isis and Osiris, we still have all of these things, that there still are bits and pieces of truth, even in things that seem on the surface to be really horrific. We still have a deep yearning, a deep understanding. I mean, David, technically speaking, no pagan can really have an understanding of sin. 
because sin means that which violates a holy God, and pagans don't have a holy God. And yet, they still understand ritual uncleanness, what we call taboo guilt today. They, they still understood that there's a problem. Now, in paganism, it is more often that that stain, what we call original sin, that that depravity is in the community rather than in the individual. So these are rituals that are cleansing the community. But they've got this idea, uh, you know, Oedipus kills his father, buries his mother, Orestes kills his mother, and becomes a sort of messianic figure that goes on the run, being chased down by the Furies. They they did understand. Like you say, they couldn't call it sin the way the Bible does, because they don't have a holy God to measure it against. But they know, okay? Everybody knows there's something wrong. So we've spoken about ancient literature and how we can see salvation history, Christ, the gospel in them. And we also spoke about modern man. And modern man is often very disconnected from these things. And I've often said that the superhero movies of today are really our modern myths. Do you think that's fair? And do you think that we can just do the same thing with these movies instead? Can we take the Marvel Cinematic Universe and apply the same ideas? I really do, because, and, and people have done that, and people started by doing that with uh, The Matrix a while ago. That's not a superhero movie, but then with The Matrix, they, they've done it with the TV series Lost, if you remember that. I really enjoyed that, that one of those J.J. Abrams things. Um, but yes, I, I do think that Marvel superheroes, which is basically the salvation of Hollywood, we, we might have lost Hollywood if it wasn't for, for them making all the money off that stuff, we are dealing with archetypal heroes, with, with types, with recurring types. And look at, look how... Avengers, the giant story arc, what does it end? With Iron Man, the most narcissistic of all of them, it ends with him becoming a messianic character who literally sacrifices himself for the life of the world, right? It's, it's, look at David, this is the cool thing, okay? Most of these stories, we say, are being written by more liberal, progressive, you know, that kind of people, and yet, who is the bad guy in the Avenger movies, the big bad guy is Thanos, a guy who snaps his finger and eliminates half the population. That's what a lot of the progressives would do if they could. Get rid of half the population, sterilize it. I mean, it's the craziest thing. All, all of a sudden, we end up with a story that affirms the sort of, I don't mean conservative, I don't mean politically, but traditional uh, idea here of the, the need for, you know, of creation, fall, redemption, it's, it's all written in there. It's like, it's like they, they may want to do something that is progressive and anti-traditional, but they almost can't help themselves because the story almost demands it. If they're going to tell a myth that is faithful to what speaks to the heart, they need it. And they also need, you know, even as Hollywood itself is, is becoming relativistic and throwing off any standards of right and wrong, good and evil, virtue and vice, that's not happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because you can't tell a story because if you don't have good and evil, then you can't have good guys and bad guys, right? And even when the good guys become vigilantes, it's getting darker and darker with Batman, we still understand that, whoa, this good guy is falling to the dark side. Well, that would be a meaningless thing to say if there wasn't a set standard of good and evil. Okay, so even as the as the superheroes get darker, it, it's actually upholding even more a sense of what true courage and justice and faith and hope and love, what they really are. So yes, I, I think that, um, and you know, a lot of podcasts are talking about this, and you know, I do a lot of apologetics, and although I'm happy to talk about sort of logical and scientific and historical apologetics. I think we need more 
cultural myth-based apologetics um, because what we, if we're going to be a Christian apologist in this modern age or postmodern age, whatever you want to call it, we need to tell a better story, okay? If we're going to attract a younger generation who is attracted to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and maybe don't even know why they're attracted, we need to tell a better story. We need to show them that there is no greater magic than God becoming man, yet continuing to be God. Really? That is the greatest thing. That's what every myth is ultimately about, God coming to man. But look at this. It actually happened. And it didn't happen because the gods were arbitrary and sleeping around. It happened because the God is a God of love who moves out of himself and comes down and sets things to right and saves us and takes us up to be where he is. Right? So this is what mythology is yearning towards. Right? There's a lot of horror in Greek mythology because we don't have gods who are really loving and caring. But the myth understands that. And it's yearning for something more. And that's why I have a whole section of stories out of Greek tragedy, too. Uh, but, you know, going back to the original myths of Greek tragedy that they're based on to try to get that dynamic as well. Before we wrap up, I did want to connect this episode to the recent segment from the Barfield Buffet uh, when you spoke about uh, Owen Barfield and saving the appearances. What do you think Owen Barfield would have to say on this particular subject? Okay, one of the things that Barfield, you know, really taught me and just taught people in general is how differently we look at the world in our post-Enlightenment and post-Renaissance world, right? Okay, the best way to explain this is why is it that Copernicus didn't cause a whole lot of turmoil, didn't get put under house arrest and all that sort of stuff, but Galileo got trouble? I mean, they said basically the same thing. Well, all Copernicus said is, Let's try a new model of the universe. You know, if we put the sun at the center instead of the earth at the center, I think that model will explain better what we see with our eyes. It will help us to save the appearances. That's the title of his book, Saving the Appearances. Because they did not see nature as a dead object cut off from us that we study under a microscope. We and nature were in some kind of sympathy so that even our perception of nature partly influenced nature. There was a give and take. There was a sympathetic universe. And all that Copernicus said was, well, let's try a new model. And, you know, heliocentric models had been tried before, back in the, the time of the Library of Alexandria. One person tried it, but people said, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't explain enough. Okay, that's Copernicus. Galileo says, no, I've looked through my telescope, and this is the way it is. This is how nature works separate from us. And we move on to Newton so that nature becomes a machine, okay? Uh, and and the, they often call that the clockwork universe. And it becomes a machine, and it becomes cut off from us and our perceptions of it. Now, we could talk about that forever, but what's the link here? The link here is the same way that we made nature into a dead object, a thing, an artifact to study. We then did that to man, turning man into a thing. Sadly, in many ways, we also did that to the Bible. We also turned the Bible into an object, into a thing, an object of study. And what we did is, to use Paul's language, we made everything dead word and we lost the spirit. Right. So in the same way that Burfield wanted to re-enchant the world, we lost our participation in the cosmos. We cut ourselves off from it. 
you can't just go back and be medievals again, right? We need to go forward to a deeper understanding where we can actually study nature, but also participate in it. Well, in the same way, I don't say go back to a, a purely mythic world, but when we look at the Bible, it needs to not only be an object we study, but something that we love. You see, in the old days, the cosmos was their home. Today, it's just our house, okay? We want to go back to the home. We want to go back to be able to read the Bible and all of its meanings, and we need to be able to use the word myth of the Bible without, therefore, robbing it of its historical truth. We've got to break the Enlightenment split. Maybe end with this, okay? According to the postmodern, language is slippery, and therefore it's meaningless. That's what you end up with Derrida and deconstruction. According to the fundamentalist, the really conservative evangelical, language is not slippery at all, and that's why it's meaningful, because it's scientific. What we call, uh, what do they call that? The uh, correspondence theory of language. Everything's a one-to-one correspondence boom, right? I would suggest something in the middle. Language is slippery, but therefore it's more meaningful. Let me end with an example of this, right? I don't know if you know this, but this is a big, big controversy, especially in the evangelical Baptist world. How do you translate the famous prophecy from Isaiah? The virgin will give birth, right? And his name will be Emmanuel. Well, yes, the Hebrew word can mean virgin or it can mean young girl, right? But the Greek word, parthenos, can only mean virgin, the way we use that word. Okay, now people, well, how do we translate it? What does it mean? Well, it means both. And why does it mean both? Because like so many of the prophecies in the Old Testament, that prophecy had a double fulfillment. It was fulfilled fairly quickly when Isaiah's wife, a young girl, gave birth to a child. So it was fulfilled in history, right? Not that long after, but it wasn't fulfilled fully until 800 years later, an actual literal virgin, as in the Greek word, gave birth to a child and didn't actually call him Emmanuel, he actually was Emmanuel, God with us. Only the slipperiness of the Hebrew language allows for that double fulfillment. And that's why I think God knew what he was doing by writing all of that prophecy in Hebrew. The only really prophetic book in Greek is is Revelation, and we're still trying to figure that one out. (laughs) (laughs) I also love the idea that in the multiple fulfillment of prophecy, it always gets better. It's the same as in typology. The anti-type is always better than the type that foreshadowed it. And so in the same way, the pagan myths are foreshadows of the gospel, which is even better. Hey, if you want to have fun, just look at the difference between the biblical figure of Samson and Christ. Samson is a messianic figure, right? And notice how the Bible literally says, and so in his death, he killed more Philistines than in his life, right? So in his death is when he really saved his people from the Philistines, when he pulled down the temple of Dagon and everyone, right? Well, that's what happened to Christ too, okay? In his death, he saved the world, but he was an innocent sacrifice, but still, the type is fulfilled and perfected when we move from Samson to Christ. Samson is so rarely referenced with regards to typology, and it was the first one that I sort of saw on my own. I didn't read a father that pointed me to it when I saw somebody standing cruciform and that exact line and phraseology yeah. about how in his death he, he wrote more destruction than in his entire life. So Samson points backwards to Hercules, 
and forward to Christ. Beautiful. Just, just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on the show. To close out, can you tell us where people can go to buy your book and where they can go to find out more about you? The best place is go to Amazon.com and type in my name. Louis Marcos is M-A-R-K-O-S. It's a Greek name. Also, I have finally put together a YouTube channel. Like I said, the new book, Plato to Christ, is going to be available the end of June. You can already pre-order it on Amazon. Maybe I'll come back in your program next year to talk about Plato, David. That would be great. <laughs> thanks again to Dr. Marcus for joining me today. And thanks to all of our top-tier supporters on Patreon. Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.